Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of the Vintage Matches podcast. I'm your host, Adam Johnson, flying solo again today. On each episode of this podcast, I will pick a sporting event from history and examine it through today's lenses. Just a reminder, this is a part of a series where we are working our way up to the Euro 2020 tournament set to take place across Europe this summer. So, the game we are focused on today is the semifinal of the 1984 UEFA European Football Championship between France and Portugal. That's right, the match this episode is centered around is a semifinal and not a final for the first time in this series. And yeah, I've strayed from the competition's climax, as you'll find out later. That's for a good reason. First, though, we have to talk about the format of this tournament yet again. After six tournaments and varying levels of success, UEFA finally came to their senses and settled on a format that would last for a bit. Just like at Euro 1980, a host was chosen in advance and seven other teams would qualify for the finals. This time, though, UEFA did away with the third place match and had two semifinals and a final after the group stage instead of just a third place match and a final. This is much more sensible and created more dramatic matches throughout the group stage. Now that you know the format, let's see who qualified for this thing. 32 nations, apart from the host, attempted to qualify for Euro 1984, and those 32 nations were split into seven groups. Groups 1, 2, and 4 all had four teams, while the rest of the groups had five teams in them. Each nation would play the others in their group, home and away, with the winners of each qualifying group advancing to the final tournament. In Group 1, Belgium saw off Switzerland, East Germany, and Scotland. Group 2 was tight, as Portugal used a last matchday victory over the Soviet Union to leapfrog, leapfrog them in the group standings and advance to the finals over the Soviets, Poland, and Finland. Denmark and England were the class of Group 3, while Hungary, Greece, and Luxembourg lagged behind. The Danes used a 1-0 win at Wembley in September of 1983 to help see their place at Euro 1984. Group 4 was incredibly tight, as Yugoslavia finished top on 8 points, Wales 2nd on 7, Bulgaria 3rd on 5, and Norway 4th on 4. Romania barely outlasted Sweden and Czechoslovakia to top Group 5, while Cyprus brought up the rear and Italy, defending World Cup champs, had a very disappointing campaign, netting just 5 points from their 8 matches. West Germany and Northern Ireland finished level on points in Group 6, but the Germans advanced thanks to a better goal difference. Austria, Turkey, and Albania finished behind those two. And finally, Group 7, which saw another tie on points at the top, but this time it was Spain advancing over the Netherlands on goal difference and ahead of the Republic of Ireland, Iceland, and Malta. So our final eight teams were in. Let's see what happened at the tournament proper. Of the last eight teams, only Portugal and Romania were making their debuts on the final stage, with the other six nations coming in as experienced campaigners. West Germany were defending champions of the Euros, and Spain were the only other side to have won the competition before. Also, Portugal, Spain, and Romania were all made up of squads entirely from their domestic leagues. The other five nations all had at least one player playing abroad, with Denmark claiming the most players from other leagues, with 14 of their 20 plying their trade abroad. This tournament felt more modern than all the other ones so far, but the squad size and local nature of their makeup is one of the biggest differences between now and then. The draw for the group stage placed Belgium, Denmark, Yugoslavia, and host France in Group 1, which meant Portugal, Romania, Spain, and West Germany would make up Group 2. Group 1 was a veritable football feast, with high-scoring matches and drama right until the end. The opening match of the tournament was at the Parc des Princes, a stadium I've been to, actually, in Paris. Uh, it's where PSG plays, and I went uh, almost two years ago now for a Women's World Cup match between China and South Africa. Um, it was not a classic match, and that is not a very nice stadium. I've been to a few in Europe now, and I I don't know. I think it's just, it needs a major update. It just feels like it's surprising that the richest club in the world plays there, but it's in a kind of a cool location, and uh, at least it, you know, I don't know. It holds, I think, about 50,000. So, yeah, I, I, but it, it feels like that that place uh, and PSG as a club in general is probably due for an upgrade. But uh, that's neither here nor there. That first match required a late goal from Michel Platini to see the host claim the two points. Unfortunately for Denmark, they lost the match 
and their talisman as Alan Siemenson, the man who scored the lone goal in the big qualifying win at Wembley, broke his leg and was subbed off at halftime. Obviously, he was out for the tournament. The second match in Group 1 saw Belgium, defending runners-up, run out 2-1 winners, or 2-0 winners over Yugoslavia in Lens. France then put Belgium to the sword in Nantes, with a 5-0 win in which Platini netted a hat-trick to go with Alan Jures and Luis Fernandez strikes. Later that night in Lyon, Denmark recorded a 5-0 win of their own over Yugoslavia. Three days later in Saint-Étienne, France trailed Yugoslavia 1-0 at the break before another Platini hat-trick helped the hosts win 3-2 on the night to take the group. Denmark followed in the French footsteps, again, by netting a 3-2 win of their own over Belgium. The Belgians had led 2-0, but a penalty from Frank Arneson and second-half goals from Kenneth Brill and Preben Elker helped Denmark into the semifinals. Both of those were fantastic matches. Group 2 was less exciting, but had its share of drama. West Germany and Portugal drew 0-0 in Strasbourg, while Romania and Spain shared the points with a 1-1 draw in Saint-Étienne. Match day 2 in Group 2 saw West Germany get a 2-1 win over Romania thanks to a brace from Rudi Voller, while Portugal and Spain renewed their Iberian rivalry with a 1-1 draw in Marseille. This set up a tense final match day with virtual winner-take-all matches in the last couple of group stage games. Spain used a late, late goal from Antonio Maceda to knock out defending champs West Germany in Paris. Later that night in Nantes, Portugal booked their place in the semis with a late goal of their own to see off Romania 1-0. This meant that Spain and Portugal would go through on four points, with West Germany falling short on three points. This set up a mouth-watering pair of semifinals, with Denmark and Spain set to face each other on the 24th of June in Lyon. But our match of focus for this episode happened the day before the Denmark-Spain clash. So come back with me to the 23rd of June at the Stade Velodrome in Marseille for the semifinal of the 1984 UEFA European Championship. Both France and Portugal were new to the latter stages of major international tournaments. France is now one of the undisputed powers of the world game, but this 1980s French team is their first truly great team that they had. They showed well at the 1958 World Cup, but were largely defined by Juice Fontaine's goals. This team, and specifically the midfield, were world-class. On either side of this tournament victory, France made the semis of the 82 and 86 World Cups. Portugal is also a major player now, but went through a real dark period for most of the 20th century, aside from Eusebio and company. This was a new matchup that livened up the footballing world. Michel Hidalgo was the man in charge of Le Bleu, and his lineup for the semifinal went like this. Joel Bats in goal. Maxime Bosses was the sweeper. Patrick Batisson, Yvon Leroux, and Jean-Francois Domergue were the center backs. The midfield was the magic square, as they were called. It was Luis Fernandez, Jean Tigana, Michel Platini, and Alain Jerez. And up front, it was Bernard Lacombe and Didier Six. Fernando Cabrita pulled the strings for the Portuguese national team, and his starting 11 looked like this. Manuel Bento in goal, João Pinto at right back, Antonio Lima Pereira at center back, Eric Luricio Gomez at center back, Alvaro at left back. The midfield was Antonio Frasco, Jaime Pacheco, and Antonio Sousa, with Fernando Chalana playing out on the left. Rui Jordão and Diamantio Miranda were the forwards. The broadcast of this match from a sunny and breezy velodrome started in the tunnel with a pretty cool shot of the refs and the players just before they walked out in front of the nearly 55,000 fans. Portugal got the ball rolling after the pre-match festivities, of anthems and coin toss. By the way, both of these nations have great anthems, with the French anthem ranking as perhaps my very favorite, but that is a podcast for another day. The opening 15 minutes of the match were lively, but saw neither side take full control. Tigana was mostly playing down the right, while Platini pushed high up the pitch, sometimes being the most forward of all the French players. Jordao was playing slightly to the left of center, and he had a couple of impressive cameos in the opening exchanges. Jordao also switched out to the right at times. It was really up and down for the opening quarter of the match, but France had a huge chance when Platini was fouled outside the box, setting up a free kick. It looked like prime shooting range for the right-footed Juventus man, but Jean-Francois Domergue, the left-footed center back, surprised everyone and hammered home his shot to give France the lead. It was a fantastic hit past the wall, and the French supporters went wild. 
The rest of the first half went by without a goal, but not without excitement. Portugal responded pretty well to going behind. Didier Six was playing pretty wide on the left for France, and they looked to free him whenever they could. But Portugal defended him well. Platini ended up being the target man in the box for most of the French crosses. He really was everywhere. Fernandez had the ball in the back of the net after some neat build-up play, but it was rightly ruled out for offside. France maintained their lead until halftime, with the teams probably needing a break after a terrific first half. Portugal made one change at halftime, bringing on Fernando Gomez for Miranda. France kicked off the second half and within 45 seconds had a huge chance to double the lead. Platini dropped deep to receive possession and then played in Fernandez, who controlled the ball wonderfully and hit his shot just wide. Jerez then drove a shot on goal that was saved by Bento in the Portuguese net. Platini had an absolute phenomenal few minutes early in the second half, popping up all over the pitch, running onto passes, creating chances, and forcing Bento into another save. He also had this lovely little cameo where he was basically double teamed. He kind of wriggled out of that with a beautiful piece of skill. And as he's kind of pulling away, he definitely gets fouled and he gets kind of pulled back. And I think he thinks the foul is going to be given. So he falls on the ball and grabs it and then kind of turns and faces up the defender. But the ref gives a handball for Platini. So he gets just furious and kind of throws the ball and starts doing, you know, a bunch of French hand gestures. And um, I mean, it was incredible. He probably should have been a foul. He probably should have had a free kick. But it was just a funny, it kind of showed both sides of him. It was like the anger, the passion and the and the skill all at once. But uh, but yeah, that was, I, I mean, I can't say enough about him. We'll talk more about Platini later. But uh, in the 62nd minute, we had our second sub. Remember that only two were allowed as Nene came on for Antonio Sousa. So the French or the Portuguese forward line has now been been changed. Uh, a few minutes later, France made their first change as Jean-Marc Ferreri came on for Lacombe, who had been booked in the first half. France really controlled this match, but thanks to a couple of wasteful finishes and some excellent bento saves, Portugal were still in it. In the 74th minute, they were really in the match. The Portuguese had been knocking on the door for a couple of minutes and, and nearly scored from a corner, but it was Rui Jordão who eventually put the ball in the back of the net to level the match. The ball found its way to Chalana on the left side of the box, and his delicate chipped cross found Jordao almost unmarked. The sporting striker guided his header into the corner for 1-1. Game on. France immediately went on the attack, looking for the winner, with Latini somehow even more involved. The France number 10 was through on goal a few minutes after the equalizer, but Bento smothered him. The rebound fell to Six, who saw his initial shot saved, and then his second shot hit the bar and incredibly fly up into the air and landed on the roof of the net. It was a wild exchange. Platini had another shot blocked for a corner, and for the first time in the semi, he was actually showing some frustration. Well, he had been showing some frustration with the ref earlier, but now he's just showing frustration that his he couldn't get his side the lead. Uh, it was really amazing that France only scored once in the first 90 minutes, but give Portugal credit, they held on and forced extra time. After a slight delay, Portugal kicked off the first period of extra time, full of confidence from the equalizer. However, France had the first big chance as, Plat- as Platini's shot popped up and forced Bento to tip over the bar. Nene then had a huge chance saved by Bats. In the 98th minute, Portugal were in dreamland as Jordao scored his second to give the Iberian nation the lead. It was Chilana again who put in the cross, but Jordao had much more to do this time. The forward waited for the ball to come down and hit it on the volley into the ground, which caused the ball to loop up in the air and over Bats and into the back of the net. Portugal led 2-1 in front of a stunned French crowd. With just a minute left in the first period of extra time, France made their second change as six came off for Bruno Ballon. Nene forced another save from Bats, just before the whistle blew for a halftime of extra time. France kicked off the second period of extra time with so much at stake, a final on their home ground. In the 107th minute, Platini wanted a penalty, but it was rightly not given. The pace picked up in the final stands of the match, and Portugal began sitting deeper and deeper, trying to control and maintain what they had. But in the 114th minute, Domergue leveled the match for France. Leroux took the first shot, which was blocked. The ball fell to the feet of Platini, and as a couple of defenders crowded him out, the ball rolled just a bit to Platini's left, where Domergue was running in. The defender smashed the ball home, and the velodrome erupted. Just like Lillian Turam 14 years later, a defender scored the only two goals of his France career in a semifinal to help his host nation to a final that they ended up winning. 
It was a blue wave after that, and just five minutes later, France had their glorious winner. The move started in France's own half, as Batistan intercepted a pass and went on a run of his own before playing the ball to Tigana. Tigana tried to play a through ball to Platini, but it was blocked back into his path. Tigana then charged into the box and then nearly got to the byline before pulling it back for Platini to smash it home and give France the lead. The final whistle blew just a minute later, and France were in the final. What a dramatic goal and one fitting of this brilliant semifinal. It was heartbreak for Portugal and elation for France. I knew the goal was coming, and I still got goosebumps after it went in. That was absolutely fantastic. What a match. Okay, let's round out the tournament. In the other semifinal, Spain and Denmark played to a 1-1 draw after extra time and required penalties. The first eight takers all buried their spot kicks before Preben Elkiar stepped up for Denmark and missed. Manu Sarabia stepped up for Spain with a chance to put his nation in the final of the European Championships for the first time in 20 years. Sarabia scored, and Spain were in the final. The final at Parc de Prince was somewhat anticlimactic after a wonderful tournament. France only made one change in their lineup for the semi, with Bruno Ballone coming in for Didier 6. Spain held firm in the first half, and the match went into the break, nil-nil. In the 57th minute, Platini whipped a free kick around the wall, and it appeared that Luis Arconada, in goal for Spain, had it covered. However, the ball squirted under the keeper and barely crossed the line. France had their breakthrough, and Platini had his ninth, repeat, ninth goal of the tournament. This also meant that Platini scored in all five of France's matches. Before the final whistle, Ballon scored a lovely chip goal to seal the win and send the French crowd into hysteria. For the first time in their history, France won a major international tournament. On the last episode of this podcast, I talked about a couple of things I wanted to add to each episode as we kind of wrap up the tournament and things like that. And I want to read out the team of the tournament um, and then give people, you know, the golden boot winners of both qualifying and the tournament itself. And then I'll nominate myself a goal of the tournament over, you know, I watch there's now video of every goal of all these tournaments. So I watched all the goals from from the tournament proper and I will nominate a goal of the tournament. Um, so let's kind of get into that. And then we have our major five categories that we like to finish with. So uh, team of the tournament that went like this. Morten Olsen of Denmark. Jao Pinto of Portugal, Andreas Brema and Karl-Heinz Forster of West Germany. The midfielders were Frank Arneson of Denmark, Alan Jures, Michel Platini, and Jean Tigana of France, and Fernando Chalana of Portugal. And the forward was Rudy Voller. So three of the four of the magic square uh, for France were in the team of the tournament, and rightly so. And Michel Platini was, I mean, by far the player of the tournament. Um, okay, the golden boot winners, Michel Platini. Obviously, he had nine, and that was in the tournament proper. So Karl-Heinz Rummenigge of West Germany was the gold boot winner of qualifying in which he played more matches and scored less goals. So this is the only time in the history of the Euros where the player who wins the golden boot of the actual tournament score more goals than the player who won the golden boot of qualifying, which is absolutely incredible. So it's nine to seven platinum over Rummenigge. So yeah, pretty awesome. Uh, goal of the tournament, Francois Verkauteren uh, for Belgium to make it 2-0 in the group stage match against Denmark. Verkuteren ran on ran onto a throw-in on the left-hand side, outmuscled the defender, took one touch with his head, and then lashed the ball home with his left foot from the very left corner of the box. I mean, it was just a remarkable goal. Yeah, just, just an awesome one. But they ended up ended up losing that game 3-3-2. Three, three, so um, that puts them up 2-0, and you think, oh man, Belgium's onto something here, and you know, maybe they'll you know get to the semifinals again. But uh, but no, they ended up losing that game 3-2, and then Denmark goes on to uh, to make the, the semifinals. Okay, so our five categories that we like to talk about at the end, um, and these are just kind of like for anybody who hasn't listened to this yet, 
these are just kind of, you know, overview things, big picture topics, and, you know, a couple of fun questions that I'd like to just kind of wrap up each tournament with or each game with, uh, depending on, you know, what I talk about. So um, the first one, did the right team win? And again, that's a tricky question. Some people think, oh, whoever won is the right team. The result is all that matters. I'm not necessarily like that. I kind of like the team that plays the best throughout the tournament to get rewarded with actually winning the tournament. And in this case, 100% the right team won. Um, that magic square, the midfield was just, you know, phenomenal. Platini, obviously well-deserving of of you know leading his team to glory after how well he played in this entire tournament. And I think it being the host nation. And and this tournament really was a step up in terms of uh, fan support and attendances. And it just it just seemed like a much, much bigger deal. I think France did a really good job of hosting this tournament. And so it kind of was cool that the host nation was rewarded with that, with uh, with winning it. So Spain did really well to make the final. But France were pretty easily the best team at Euro 1984. So yes, the right team did win. One random observation from the broadcast. That'll be category number two. Um, and again, footballia.net, the amazing website where I've watched a lot of these games. Uh, the broadcast is of great quality and it has English commentary. Um, it, and again, this is the semifinal, the France-Portugal semifinal. It was a one-man show, which I don't mind for football. I think other sports require two people in the booth, but football is the sport that can most effectively be commented on by one person. I really don't mind when it's just one guy. And that happens at some, you know, you watch some modern Champions League games and it's just one commentator. And they're not, you know, you're not getting as much kind of color and it's not, there's not any like back and forth or kind of banter, but it can be done. Whereas I think basketball really requires two. I think football and baseball definitely require two. I actually don't really like when it gets to three in some of those sports because it's just a little bit too crowded. I know the like famous ABC one for basketball is the, you know, the Mike Breen, Mark Jackson, Jeff Van Gundy. Um, I actually like it a lot more when it's just Breen and Van Gundy, but you know, that's, that's neither here nor there. So yeah, I think, I think it, it can be done with one man. And I think that was something that stuff from the broadcast. It was still a really high quality broadcast despite being, despite it being just one person, my favorite player to watch from the tournament. I mean, Platini would be a little bit too obvious. I mean, he was clearly the best, but my favorite player to watch had to be Jean Tigana. Um, he had the untucked shirt. He was popping up all over the midfield. He was just super skillful. Um, and a little bit about his background. He was born in French Sudan and, uh, he was playing for Bordeaux at the time of Euro 1984. And yeah, he's just a phenomenal player who had a really, really long, you know, distinguished career in France and and became a manager later in his career and managed clubs like Lyon, Monaco, Fulham, Besiktas, Bordeaux, and then Shanghai, Shenhua. So, I mean, yeah, he had a nice little post playing career, too, of, of managing a bunch of these clubs. And um, yeah, I mean, he played the most for Bordeaux from 81 to 89, uh, but also had stints with Lyon and Marseille and, and a short stint with Toulon at the beginning of his career. And uh, yeah, he was just, I mean, so, so fun to watch. I thought just like the way he kind of moved about the pitch, he was just really, really entertaining and uh, and, and obviously really effective too. Um, the best shirt. I'm obsessed with football shirts. I will say that on every episode. Um, and the France home shirt and the Belgium away shirts were both excellent, but this one has to go to the Denmark home shirt. From the oversized numbers on the back to the unique sleeve design, this shirt is an absolute thing of beauty. As we move forward in this project, the shirts are getting more and more bold, which is a welcome feature if I do say so myself. Yeah, that Denmark one, just, yeah, gorgeous. One big takeaway. This is what we'll finish with. Um, and I think the biggest takeaway for me is that this tournament had fully arrived. It just felt like a major international tournament. Again, the, the crowds were full at most of the games. There was great weather uh, by all accounts, and the attacking ambitions were on display in nearly every match, except for some of the Group 2 ones. And then I think, you know, Kier Radnich talked about this in his piece uh, from World Soccer, and I think I think he sums it up pretty well. He says, Over the years, many, many people have tried to put an adequate label to the game of football. It has been the glory game, the beautiful game. All those cynics and all those disillusioned stay away fans who have laughed and jeered at such verbal extravagance should have been here in France for the finals of the 1984 European Championship. The matches were brilliant. The crowds enthralled. The football exhilarating. The skills supreme and the overall effect magnificent. This is the finest tournament of its kind since the finals of the 1970 World Cup in Mexico, when the demands of coping with altitude slowed the pace of the game and worked fast to induce the sort of mistakes born of weary bodies. 
Far and away, this is the best finals tournament of the European Championships 24 years. The pace and drama of 1976 was here, but more still. The 1976 finals in Yugoslavia enveloped only four games. Here in France, the class and quality endured through two weeks in a full program of 15 matches. So yeah, I think I think there was a sense that it just it just felt bigger. It was just bigger. I mean, I think you know, adding the teams sometimes that can have a, a watering down effect, but I think in this case, it added more quality, more variance, and just a lot more fun. And so I think yeah, it just that's that's my biggest takeaway is like, oh, this I really felt like I was watching a Euros, whereas the other ones it felt like, okay, you know, I'm clearly making a leap here. This is like going back in time just a bit. It just didn't quite feel like that big a deal. Whereas I, I thought this this tournament, all the highlights I watched, and obviously the full match was just it was just excellent. Radnich continues, the French should emerge as winners was a climax for which all football fans should rejoice. Their victory was a deserving prize for the stimulation, entertainment, and sheer fresh air which the French have breathed into the game through the finals of the World Cup in both 78 and 82. So often in football, the deserving teams come away empty-handed. Brazil in 1950, Hungary in 1954, Holland in 1974, and the French themselves in 1982. All these fine teams finishing, finishing short of the ultimate prize in those assorted World Cups. France have now reestablished a sense of football justice. Teams can win at the highest level while concentrating on the virtues of skill, technique, and vivacity. Teams can win at the highest level with superior class. So yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of like, you know, uppity kind of <laughs> nose in the air. Uh, oh, I wish only attacking teams won. But I, I feel that too. I mean, I, I, I've watched those old World Cups and that Hungary team of 54 and the Holland team of 1974. Those are two of the best teams I've ever seen play. And they were kind of, it feels a little bit robbed on the highest stage of not winning the World Cup. But there also is something romantic about that is like maybe they're more remembered because they didn't win. You know, it's like that's like, oh, like the great injustice that they didn't win. It's like that almost like lingers in people's minds even more than if they had won. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's not true, but it kind of feels like that might be. So, yeah, I think it just uh, like uh, some of those words uh, of Radnan just goes to show like the feeling of the time. And I think Platini, I mean, you just have to, again, talk about him again. He's in the midst of three straight Ballon d'Or wins from for 83, 84 and 85. He's clearly the best player in the world at that time and one of the best to ever play. He's gone on to obviously have like not the greatest post-playing career in terms of like running UEFA and being involved in a bunch of corruption scandals and things like that. But as a player, I mean, there's no doubting how good he was. I mean, he really is in that kind of upper, you know, top 10 to 15 players of all time. I mean, just an absolutely phenomenal player. Um, he won the Champions League with Juventus during the middle of that Ballon d'Or run. And uh, yeah, I mean, he just, there's not much to say. I mean, nine goals in a, in a five game tournament. That's just pretty remarkable when he's, I mean, essentially playing as a midfielder. Again, I talked about how he popped up at all over, all over the pitch and was, you know, he's sometimes the furthest forward and he's sometimes a target man. I mean, he really could play anywhere across the the midfield or the front line. I mean, he was that versatile. So yeah, just awesome to watch. And I thought this was just a really fun game. And I think one that, you know, some of these games that I've watched, I wouldn't lie to like a modern fan, like somebody who's not as into watching old games. I'm not going to lie to them and be like, oh yeah, it was great. You know, I thought 76, a couple of the games, you know, th those are really good. But this was one where I feel like just anybody who likes soccer will will enjoy this. I think they'll just they could they could sit down and watch this entire match and be like really into it and just, you know, impressed with the skill and the up and down nature of it. I mean, again, there's, there's there's another game where the midfield is a little bit stretched. You know, the midfield isn't overcrowded. So there are breakaways kind of both ways up and down. I, again, just thought it was great. So, um, yeah, I, mean, I can't say enough about how much this felt like a major tournament. And it was a rightful they had a rightful champion to cap it all off. And so. That'll kind of wrap it up for me for Euro 1984. Obviously, I thoroughly enjoy this thing. People can probably tell by the tenor of my voice that this is the most fun I've had watching these games so far. And uh, this is the most this tournament that I've enjoyed the most researching. But the next one, Euro 1988, is a fun one too. And uh, the shirts alone get better and better. And I'm very excited to talk about some of those.
So yeah, be looking out for that next episode. That'll come out on Friday, um, Euro, a Euro 1988 breakdown. Haven't decided exactly which match to go with yet, but I will in the next couple of days. And uh, you guys will hear it on this next episode. Hope you guys are enjoying this series. Thanks for listening. And I hope to see you again next time when we talk about Euro 1988.